I don't look back. As I grew older, I look I look back to the purpose of writing a memoir. That was wonderful fun, and I've been caught in some interviews being rather hazy about who was in some of my movies. Hollywood producer David Brown today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. David Brown was a fixture in Hollywood starting in the early 1950s, but he made his mark starting in the 1970s, producing films like Jaws, The Iger Sanction, The Sting, Driving Miss Daisy, and so forth. Dozens and dozens of movies. In 1990, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences awarded David Brown the Irving Thalberg Memorial Award for his body of work. He wrote a memoir that year, 1990, and that's when I met and interviewed him. David Brown, from 1990. I'm nearly 74 years old, and I say in the prologue to the book that Gene Shalit, who has been hearing my stories for years, said, why don't you write that stuff? And I did. It took me a long time. I had written a book three years ago interrupting this book called Brown's Guide to Growing Gray. And since I started as a journalist, I thought, why not write? You can write. When Gene Shalit was here talking about his own book, he said that he finally realized, uh, as he decided to write it, that he hadn't had nothing to let to leave to his children as a legacy. He, I mean, his all his broadcasts were out somewhere on their way to Jupiter by now, mm. and there was nothing tangible. Did you feel that you wanted to leave something tangible for for those who will follow you? No, I just wanted to leave something tangible for the remainder of shelves, and. Uh, <laughs> If, heaven forbid, it should happen, I don't think it will for a while, but uh, not to be uh, utterly cynical about it, I wanted to give myself the gift of recollection, so to speak, to relive my own life. And by dredging things about your childhood and your earliest years, it's really remarkable. It's a form of catharsis. At a certain age, you can say anything you like. And being, I think, a nice person, it's a warm-hearted book, but it's a true book. I didn't have to lie. You had so much fun. I, mean, I could tell just by reading the stories that you've had a fun life. Do you ever look back and you wonder, how have I had this much? How did I wind up not being an accountant somewhere, stuck in a department store, third floor, adding pennies and nickels and dimes all my life? Oh, I've thought about that often, and I think about it now because my concern about reincarnation is, and I put this in my other book, is that I might wind up on a boat, uh, rowing a boat on the River Ganges or something. <laughs> I just hope if I'm born again to get into the same kind of a, of a, of a world. <laughs> but I've had a lot of pain in my life, too, and when you survive all of that, it's wonderful, and never have I been happier or more productive than I am now. Do you ever wonder why? Yes, I do wonder why. I don't know. I think everything settles down. I've been married for 31 years. It's my third time. I've been through any number of jobs. When I formed my own business, when I got out of the corporate world, and when it worked, I became a free person because I'm actually a very frightened person and I don't relate well to doing what I had to do most of my life, which was pleasing other people. The uh, films that are referred to on the cover, The Jaws and The Sting, those are only two of, of the many that we all have, have come to enjoy, and we watch many of them on videotape at home quite frequently, thanks to the wonders that uh, my children don't realize that I didn't have when I was a boy. <laughs> yeah. Do you look? Do you watch your own movies? Do, do you never, never. Just for a little while, then 
I have all of the VCR, the cassettes of the movies, particularly The Verdict, which I loved. Mm-hmm. But I don't look back. As I grew older, I looked. I look back for the purpose of writing a memoir. That was wonderful fun. And I've been caught in some interviews being rather hazy about who was in some of my movies. Do you look upon it as an artistic effort? I know a lot of artists, they say, I don't want to be judged. I, I don't want to go back and look at my own work. I mean, it's there. You judge for yourself what it is. I look back on my experience as a producer or as an author or anything else as work done well, as well as I could do it. I I came aboard in Hollywood during a very pragmatic time when Jimmy Cagney said, I act to put bread on the table, and Nunley Johnson, who was a wonderful wit and writer of a particular period, and I deal with him in, in my book, uh, he, he was a journalist. I, I had a typewriter next to my, my chair up to perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. Then I couldn't operate these newfangled technological things. I do have a word processor, but I'm always in danger of wiping out its memory. <laughs> that was one nice thing about the typewriter. You never had to worry about wiping out its memory. No, only my own. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back on, on all the things that you've done... The good things and the bad, the the, the, the fun experiences, the mm. tragic experiences. Do you ever feel like it's all happened to somebody else? Yes. I even feel when I re- I do reread my book occasionally to see if I can find any typos, because I was a former copy editor. And uh, when I read it, I said, did I write this? How did I remember this? I didn't keep a diary except for a little while, and I've got some of those diary things in my book. But uh, I'm astonished it does did happen to someone else. Uh, it, you, life is, in my experience, is in many compartments. You are a different person. I look at a photograph of myself in that book at age 25 or 26 or 27, the same bones, even the same hairline, but a darker color. And uh, I do wonder, why. who was that chap? Well, we all have to explore ourselves at different times. But I couldn't help but think, again, as I read the stories, how... How many people in this world get into something when they're 18, 20, 22 years old, whatever, and they're stuck doing that? So you could look at a picture 50 years earlier, and you're still doing the same thing. I think part of it is being a fantast and being a dreamer and having grown up during the Depression years when, oddly enough, almost anything seemed possible and being part of the romantic tradition of the American society where anybody can be president. And we found that to be true. And the uh, I I just I always was dreaming of becoming a journalist. But I was influenced by early movies, whether it was the front page. Several books also influenced me. For a while, I was going to be a doctor when I read uh, Aerosmith, Sinclair Lewis's book. Then Microbe Hunters by Paul de Kriff put me into research. Then. Uh, other books turned me into different areas. I became a radio ham because I once wrote a, read a series of books that told me how to, you could assemble a, a radio station. So I've been influenced by the media. We didn't call it the media then. We called it the press. But all of that stuff. And I was impractical, a visionary, and I just was going to do something interesting. How do you write a book like this that has so many... I mean, the, the jacket... It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the names, the, the famous people that you talk to us about in this book. But how do you write a book and tell these stories without sounding like one of these boring cocktail party name droppers? Oh, I had lunch with the princess yesterday. By divesting yourself, and thank you very much for that comment, 
ego is the enemy of prose, I think. And I simply never thought, nor does my wife, Helen Gurley Brown, we've never taken what we've accomplished in life very big. Call it humility. Maybe it is humility because we know as depression kids and I think well-brought-up people that fame is illusory. It really, And if you start hyping yourself, you're going to be put down by yourself or by others. I just, these are people I met along the way as a reporter, as a producer, as a person. I've associated with people, but I've tried to keep a low profile. And the greatest compliment people have paid me is that I didn't think you could be a producer. You don't seem like a Hollywood producer. Well, I do smoke cigars. <laughs> well, there you go. You're qualified. <laughs> Nobody else does, though. Everybody's on diet, you know, club club soda, and the health the health revolution has really caught me uh, unprepared. But you probably take lunch and do meetings. And I never take meetings or do lunch, but I love lunch. <laughs> You told uh, uh, you've got stories in here about Jaws, which is one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And you tell me things that I never. Uh, this this is this is better than any National Enquirer expose mm-hmm. because first of all, I know it's true that mm-hmm. you're telling me. But again, there's that 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 just a a low key, a, 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 a humble way of of speaking. But the stories in here that you tell, uh, the, uh, Richard Dreyfus uh, not being happy with the way the movie was being made, oh, hated it. <laughs> he hated the making it, but until he saw it, the 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 whole thing about Hollywood, having come there as a journalist in late 1951, and having covered entertainment as a writer, I found that the legend never was as as bizarre as the reality. The reality of Hollywood and the entertainment world is so much greater than what is written about it that I thought, why not write about the way it really was because you couldn't exaggerate the way things are. In Hollywood, they were much more bizarre, more grandiose. I mean, you know, I remember that wonderful line, probably apocryphal, of Sam Goldwyn's who said in a story meeting, let's take a typical American city, Las Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) How much of that is the press agent? Uh, do they plant most of the stories that are in the Inquirer and things like that, don't they? I don't know about the Inquirer, uh, how they get these stories. I don't think anyone plants stories in the supermarket papers because the great uh, fear of stars today is getting in print at all. There's been a complete revolution. When I was young and in the movie business, we had press agents who got you into the paper. Now you have press agents that keep you out. You can't even get the press agents. I know that from experience. My wife, Helen Gurley Brown, editing Cosmopolitan, and other editors constantly have enormous difficulty in getting interviews with very, very famous movie types. Where they do want to be is Rolling Stone or something like that, where they feel there's a friendly environment, not not necessarily a laudatory environment, but a friendly environment, and uh, they don't want to go into the... They, they don't like that. They, but they will go on talk shows if they own a part of the picture. You know, I, I, I can't help but recall that, that they said when, when television came that radio was dead. When, uh, when television came, they said the movies were dead. When VCRs came, they said, well, nobody's going to go to their neighborhood theater anymore. And not only has each of those things that were supposed to be dead survived, it has thrived and gotten well, even bigger. And that, it's an observation that I love, the one that you've just met. Each of these 
particular enterprises has flourished. One fed the other. They call it synergism. And you've got to be in the right place at the right time to take advantage of that, don't you? You have to be born at the right time. You, uh, regarding the, uh, the movie business now is very, very good, but it's polarized. A picture is dead on arrival or it's just beginning to bloom. The most interesting example of that is one that I was peripherally associated with. That was Driving Miss Daisy as executive producer. The Xanax were the producers. I left the company while that was coming along, so I did get credit for finding the property, or at least making the deal, and finding and making the deal with the writer. But uh, Driving Miss Daisy broke all the rules, Every and it was brilliantly distributed by Warner Brothers. They put it in one theater in New York, the 68th Street Playhouse, and they gradually fanned out. The word of mouth made it. The critics also helped. It reminds me of a cartoon in The New Yorker about my other occupation, producing plays. A bunch of producers standing around exulting over the great review, probably by Frank Rich of The New York Times or Your Man in Washington, David Richards, I believe. I shouldn't remember his name after what he did to the cemetery club, but oh, and a few good men. Anyway, the men are standing around, and the, and, the, and, the, and the line under the cartoon says, yes, it's great, but what do we do when the word of mouth catches up with us? <laughs> I have never met a novelist yet who was happy with the way the movie version of his book came out. And they all it, it's almost universal. Why is that? because a movie is not a book and not a novel. On the other hand, I can think of two examples. Barry Reed, who wrote The Verdict, was thrilled with David Mamet's version of The Verdict. And John O'Hara, whom I helped bring to Hollywood, uh, why do I say help? I did bring him to Hollywood. Uh, he loved a movie called Ten North Frederick, which was a black and white version of his. He wept when he saw it. He wept with ang anger when he saw From the Terrace. But it's generally speaking, I'm sure Gone with the Wind pleased Margaret Mitchell. I think I would see, I would find it difficult for that not to be the case. But authors are the worst adapters of their own material because they've written the definitive work. When uh, Sidney Howard, uh, who was the, uh, play the screenwriter for Gone with the Wind, after about 14 writers were tried, was able to dramatize. It's a form of abridgment. It's a form of seeing seeing ways of getting plot done through dialogue or action. The novelist has the luxury of internal monologues, of, of dreaming with his reader. I never knew a novelist who didn't want to be a dramatist, and I never knew a dramatist who didn't want to be who did want to be a novelist. That is not my observation, but one of James Michener's. David Brown died 10 years ago this week at age 93. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything as we continue our Oscar week, a true Hollywood legend, Charlton Heston, the star of movies such as Ben-Hur, El Cid, Earthquake, Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston won the Oscar for Ben-Hur in 1959. And next time, you'll hear my 1995 interview with the great Charlton Heston on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.